the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton. This episode, I spoke to Bruno Reddy, former head of maths at King Solomon Academy, creator of MrReady.com, and the man behind the phenomenon that is Times Table Rockstars. In an epic two-hour interview, we covered loads of things, including how does Bruno plan his lessons? Bruno describes a bad lesson he taught and what he learned from it. Why does Bruno believe that culture, both in the school and the classroom, is the key to behaviour management and learning, and what specifically is a culture like at King Solomon Academy? What lesson routines do Bruno's students follow? What are Bruno's views on homework and written feedback? What does mastery mean to Bruno, and why does he believe in it so passionately? What preconceptions did Bruno have before going to Shanghai, and what are his thoughts now? Why does Bruno believe that mixed attainment classes are so important? And to top it all off, Bruno gave us a lovely puzzle, which you can tweet him your effort using the hashtag Bruno's Puzzle. Obviously, I am completely biased, but once again, I genuinely think this is a cracking, thought-provoking listen, and it's all down to the quality of my guest. I really hope you agree. Before we get cracking, two quick plugs, none of which will cost you a penny, so I hope you won't mind just uh, delaying the interview for just one minute. Firstly, on diagnostic questions, we are once again doing a 100 days countdown to the GCSE maths exam, but this year it is completely free. Once you sign your students up, and that just takes one click, each day they will be sent two top quality GCSE questions that will help prepare them for either the higher or the foundation paper. And at the end of each day, their class teacher will be sent a detailed PDF report full of insights about their misconceptions. Once again, this is completely free and not exam board specific. And once you have set it up, which as I say takes a couple of clicks, just sit back and hopefully let the learning begin. Just head over to diagnosticquestions.com forward slash streams, that's forward slash streams, to find out more. And my second plug is that I've started up a non-maths podcast called Just The Job. On it, I interview people about the jobs they do. My tagline is, whether you're a student thinking about your future career, an adult thinking about changing job, or just someone who is interested in what the rest of the world does for a living, then hopefully this is the podcast for you. That took me flipping ages to come up with that as well. Anyway, I will be interviewing a fireman, a venture capitalist, a hairdresser, a deputy British ambassador, a midwife, an armed response policeman, and much more. If that sounds interesting to you, then please head over to the justthejobpodcast.com. That's justthejobpodcast.com to find out more. Anyway, enough about me. Let's get on with the show. And let's spend some time in the company of the wonderful Mr. Bruno Reddy. I'll see you on the other side. So, Bruno, I'd like to start with your three math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? My favourite number is seven, and that's because I got married on the 7th of the 7th of the 7th. Oh, very romantic start. I like, I like it. Very good. Your wife will be very happy with that. Um, number two, what was your favourite topic in maths to learn as a student? My favourite topic in maths was... I have a thing about classifying things. I like the way in biology you've got the 
those classification trees. So I always like classifying shapes, like triangles, quadrilaterals, pentagons, things like that. Oh, no, I know you. Are we talking classifying in a bit of a Venn diagram or just just a list? What, what kind of thing floats your boat there? <laughs> um, I don't know how much my boat is floating <laughs> to that extent. Um, but I think one of those organogram type things. You know, the, is it has it got four sides? Is it has it got two pairs of parallel sides? Oh, nice. Yes, I, I know. I know the ones. Perfect. Um, and number three, if you weren't a teacher, what job would you like to do? I'd be an architect, I think. Oh, and did you ever kind of pursue that as a career at any stage? Uh, I'd like to have done. The closest I got was something that was building related in my in my dissertation for my undergraduate degree. And then I worked for a buildings engineering company, but not as an architect. Um, yeah, if I had my time again, I'd probably go back and become an architect. Uh, I don't want to say too much about my dissertation because I'm going to save that bit for the puzzle podcast. Nice bit of a teaser for like, keep the audience on the toes there. I like that. Perfect. Well, we'll move now into uh, becoming a teacher. Um, can you just describe the steps involved that led you to uh, the kind of position you're in now? So just a little brief history of, of your career to date, if that's all right, Bruno. Yeah, brief history is that at the time I was finishing university, Teach First was just starting up. And I thought that that would be a brilliant way for me to spend uh, two years doing something that I knew I was going to enjoy. I'd always spent a lot of my childhood um, running youth groups or helping out with, with younger children at school um, just, and helping out family members with you know, younger siblings or cousins. Always enjoyed that. Um, so I thought, well, two years after university doing something that will make me smile every day and hopefully will make me employable in whatever sector in the future um, seems like a good option. So I joined Teach First, um, fell in love with teaching. Um, having said that, um, I did spend um, a couple of years working as a sustainability kind of eco monkey <laughs> engineering firm in the city, um, but totally missed the classroom. And then spent the best part of 18 months with a few ex Teach Firsters dreaming up the idea of starting our own school. Um, and it was it was completely hypothetical at the time. We did, I think we dreamed of opening a school, but never really thought that it would become a possibility. And then the laws changed, and the pathway opened for um, academies. Um, and we uh, found, or a board of governors sort of found us, or we found a board of governors. It was all happy coincidence type stuff. And um, and so we opened up King Solomon Academy Secondary in 2009. Uh, and the rest is, is more or less history. That's fantastic. And we're going to definitely uh, delve more into your philosophy behind the school and all that later on. So that that's perfect. And um, can we uh, next move on to routines and in particular planning lessons? Because this is something that forever fascinates me, how different teachers go about putting lessons together. So can you just um, perhaps think of a lesson, um, any topic you want, any age group, um, and just kind of hypothetically imagine that it was coming up tomorrow or something like that. How would you go about preparing for that lesson? What would would you think about where would you go to get resources could you just talk us through your, your planning process Bruno um, yeah so I tend to think really carefully about the misconceptions or where kids are going to tell me that they're stuck because uh, that kind of stuff keeps me awake at night and <laughs> terrifies me in lessons when they say so I can't do this with a really like in a really grumbly kind of way like this <laughs> 
Um, no, that genuinely makes me um, terrified. Well, that situation terrifies me. So um, I spend a lot of time thinking, well, where are the bits where they're likely to get stuck? What prior knowledge are they probably going to be missing or is a bit insecure that I'm going to need to focus on at the beginning of the lesson so that they've had a bit of a refresher and then they'll find the main course a lot easier. Um, and can you give us a specific topic you've got in mind and what kind of prior knowledge they would need to have and how you would kind of go about assessing that or, or dealing with those misconceptions? Okay, so today a lesson on um, expanding a pair of brackets. I wanted them to get onto um, being able to expand a bracket, a pair of brackets that had something like 2x plus 3 uh, multiplied by... Mm, 2x minus 5 or something, you know, where x had a coefficient, basically. And I thought, well, they're probably going to be reasonably comfortable when x doesn't have a coefficient, but what happens if I throw the coefficient of x in there? Yeah. Before any involvement of brackets and pairs of brackets, we just went over what would happen if you, did, if you had 2x multiplied by x, what would happen if you had 2x multiplied by 3, or 2x multiplied by negative 5, that sort of stuff. So removing it from the the disguise of putting it inside a bracket and just testing that they could still do that skill and is that kind of whole class questioning at the start or is that the kids having to go on their own first how, how does that pan out that that start of the lesson so it's probably three four five six questions roughly on the board fairly quick fire i might do the first one and then um give a few seconds thinking time for number two and choose someone or if, if it seems like everybody's itching with the answer, I might just say, right, after three, one, two, three, and everybody calls out the answer. Um, if, uh, if mini whiteboards are out already, I might say, right, okay, let's go to the mini whiteboards for this, hold them up after five, one, two, three, four, five, all boards go up. Um, or, um, yeah, well, I, I know, I'm, I'm running out of options there. I mean, I, I'm not sure or false, so I might do an answer myself, deliberately get it wrong, and then say, true or false, uh, 2x times by x is 3x. Nice. And is this, Bruno, what year year group are we talking here? Um, This was a year 11 group I'm talking about. Year 11. Okay. And then where does the where does the lesson where lesson go for that? So let's assume that any misconceptions, kind of baseline knowledge, have, have been resolved, and now you get in onto the kind of the, the skill that you want them to have, have achieved by the end of the lesson. Where does the lesson go for go from there? I'll probably start to build it up um, from there. So single bracket with a term outside, then make that a bit more complex by having uh, a second bracket. Um, make that more complex by putting in a coefficient of x, make that more complex by maybe throwing in a, a fraction as one of the constants or reversing the typical order of what's inside the bracket. So instead of x minus 3, it's minus x plus 3, negative x, negative 3, I'm trying to get my negative, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> negative 3 plus x, but just put the x on the right hand side of the bracket just so that it, the unfamiliar becomes a bit more familiar. And again, is this is are the whole class doing this at the same time, or are kids kind of working through at their own pace? How 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 does that pan out? Good question. Um, it's um, so I see the need for um, aspects of differentiation, but the the bit the part of differentiation where you give them you know there are three strands like an easy, medium, and hard mm. strand. 
and you say, right, if you think you can do the easy, or if you think you can only do the easy, do the easy. If you think ready for medium, do medium. And if you think you want to do the hard, then do hard. For me, that, that doesn't work because um, I understand that you're trying to reach pupils at the level that they're at, but it fragments the class, number one, uh, and that, as a result, affects culture, I think, is number two. And for me, culture trumps just about everything you could be doing. Um, so I would rather put culture first than um, some sort of differentiation technique where different children are doing different activities or different levels of questions. That's very interesting. So all the all the students are doing the same questions at the same kind of pace and, and kind of the class is moving on together at, at a, at a uniform, unified rate. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, and I'm, because there aren't, I'm not putting many questions up, I'm not giving them very long. So I'm expecting everybody to work pretty quickly so that we can all move on together to the next thing, to a true or false activity, to an odd one out question, to a round of jeopardy, to, a, I don't know, a quick misconception check, or just onto the, the next uh, set of style of questions that I've just made a bit more complex. And the the obvious question that that springs to mind here: what what are we doing there if we've got a child who um, who you can tell it hasn't kind of grasped the concept at the same rate as as everyone else? Um, fair question. I don't know that it's resolved by um, giving three different streams though. So if it's yes, all, I don't think that the all fixes it necessarily either. Um, so if a, if your people are struggling, then I guess knowing my class really well, they're the kind of people that I would be making a beeline for as soon as I set pupils off on the work to go and support them. Or I'd make sure in the seating plan that they were sit, sat next to someone that A, could help them and B, they were willing to be helped by. Or generally trying to set up the, the culture and the habits and the, the willingness to go and help somebody or be helped by anybody in the class. Perfect. And this um, this topic of culture is definitely something um, I'm going to return to um, in a few minutes. So we're we're at the stage where the, the students have all um, kind of gone at, gone at one pace through these questions, and you've you've carefully built up the skills. Then you're introducing, if I'm right, some kind of different activity, whether it be Jeopardy, whatever it might be, so the kids kind of have chance to cons- kind of consolidate on their own and work through something in a slightly different context. And then what's happening at the end of the lesson, Bruno? I mean, just some of my reasons for choosing those, I just wanted to add, is yes. to keep a handle on where they're at. And what I think you lose when you do the easy, medium and hard option is when you're going through the answers, the most efficient way is to stick the answers up to easy, medium and hard and say, right, mark your own off, yes. and then we'll carry on. But that gives me no information about the, to what extent they've understood it. And it means that they probably could have been pushed onto something harder, but they spent all their time or too much of the time just doing the body of questions that they ended up choosing. Um, and that for me is a, um, is a huge lost opportunity in the lesson if I'm not picking up what, what they've managed to do and how well they've managed to do it. Yeah, that that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I've uh, again, I, I I do something fairly similar. I, I've moved it's certainly in the last kind of five or six years away from this this kind of trend that there is of letting students select the level that that they want to work at. I'm I'm a firm believer that 
that that very rarely works and that we as teachers should be the one who are kind of determining the level that we want the students to work at but then I'm always fighting with that that I've just mentioned there about what do we do if we get the kid who's struggling what do we do for the kid who's kind of we feel that we might be holding back but I guess that that again goes back to your culture point and also the fact that you're not spending a long time on these questions so any any holding back that may be happening or any struggling that a child may be having happening is only for a kind of short period of time is 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 that kind of the point that you, you'd make there yeah it is and it's you know if it's if it's something that i can see that there are people who are struggling is a topic or a point or a concept that people are struggling with then i'm going to put it on the next day's do now and maybe the next five days do now uh, i'm going to stick it into homework uh, and find various ways to keep coming back to it so of course there are going to be students who don't get stuff first time but if i keep drip feeding it into into their line you know, keep putting it in their line of sight every day for however long then hopefully they will start to get it and it's not just a matter of putting it in their line of sight day after day obviously you've got to go over and, and help them with that and help them with the understanding it's not just by brute force of, co- of course and can you just um, explain what do you mean by a do now do now as a starter uh, whenever we, when, it, when we come on to talk about culture and routines I want to start by talking about entry routines to the lesson perfect perfect so if we just wrap up this uh, this kind of planning thing um can you just talk briefly about how that particular lesson would end the one on the uh, expanding the brackets yeah okay so i'd like to have got on um to multiplying either three brackets multiplying a single bracket that's been squared or multiplying a pair of brackets where one of the brackets contains a quadratic expression and the other one a linear expression um just to kind of push them on a little bit further than you know, a little bit off piste um, and then the lesson would probably end if I had the time in my planning and bear in mind I don't live by my name I'm never ready for anything <laughs> you know, to do it last minute <laughs> generally late for everything um, and that includes presentations and conference stuff I tend to arrive hide in a room finish off my presentation <laughs> So anyway, if I had if I'd had the time when I'm on form, then I would have prepared an exit ticket. And an exit ticket contains maximum three questions, but maybe even only one, uh, that that um, allows me to assess the extent to which they've understood uh, today's topic. So it might be an exam question. Um, it might be a reworking of one of the questions they've already done. It might be a, mul- a series of multiple choice questions. Um, but something then that would allow me straight after the lesson to kind of very quickly tip across and have a sense right okay there's a whole group of pupils that I missed out completely they just didn't get this or ah interesting they're always forgetting to do this or oh good they're remembering to do that or whatever it might be but a quick exit ticket lasting two three minutes I take it in spend five minutes marking it course if I had something electronic like diagnostic questions <laughs> nice plug there Bruno I'll, I'll send you the tenor in the post after for that that's perfect um but can I move now on to um to to thinking about a lesson that you've taught um fairly recently or whenever just just in in your memory that didn't go to plan that went badly and if you could just talk about why it went badly and specifically what you learned from that experience Okay, um, I'm going to go back to to feedback in my first year at KSA, which is when I was trying to do too much, 
and Max, the head teacher, would say, Bruno, your, your mind seems to be everywhere. When you're walking around handing, handing stuff out, you're talking. And as soon as you got back to the front, you're trying to hand the next thing out or you're trying to change to a video that you've made or found. You know, just calm down. When you're handing stuff out, hand stuff out and don't, don't talk over the top of all, all, all that process because they won't concentrate on the sheet once you've given it. When you're giving instructions, don't be moving around the room at the same time. Um, when you when they are making notes or working on stuff, don't try and talk over the top of that because they're, you know they're either listening to you or they're working. Um, so that's the times when I've got it wrong. It's basically my lack of clarity with instructions or trying to do too much simultaneously and not then being aware of things going on in the classroom when pupils are losing focus, when my explanation is missing the point, when they're asking me a question because they're stuck and I'm not really hearing what they're getting at. Um, I think so that, that's kind of, yeah, I've learned to just slow things down a little bit more uh, in my head and be able to focus, uh, free up some mental brain space to take into account more of what's going on in the classroom. That's it's interesting you say that. That's I think if if I was to try and well, there's, there's a, a my lessons are miles away from from perfect certainly these days. But that's one thing that that I I do all the time. Talk too flipping much. Like I, I find it hard to have have silence in the classroom. I, I get a bit uncomfortable and you're absolutely right and it's when you've said that it's really hit home the kids are either listening or they're working and it's it takes it's very rare that anybody can do both those things well at the same time and I think that's that's one thing I certainly need to do is is talk a lot less and I I observed the teacher teaching a year 10 class uh, just a couple of weeks ago and I've never felt so calm in a lesson in my life just the kind of calmness that she she instilled there by not talking and that's certainly something that that I don't have in my lessons so yeah I think you're right just kind of knowing when to shut up knowing when to just observe what's going on and it just just makes you more alert to to yeah the the, the situations that are happening in your classroom and yeah I think that's that's definitely something I'm I'm going to take on board myself there um that's one I've learned to give an instruction and then wait for it to be executed like if it's file away your papers or whether it's get your pencil out or whether it's you know draw a margin or file away or something give the instruction and wait for it to be executed rather than plowing on with the next instruction or with the next explanation because like I was saying before I'm, I can't expect them to do the instruction and then listen to whatever it is that I'm supposed to be then saying next yeah that's nice that's nice well that feeds nicely then into into this whole concept of of culture and also very much related to that behavior in maths lessons so i know this is something you're you're very passionate about and i've i've heard you speak a couple of times now about the culture in the classroom that you managed to instill in in ksa and i wonder if you could just talk us through your views on culture and classroom routines and behavior and just just that whole topic and we'll just yeah we'll just we'll just take it from there if that's all right bruno so school culture is a huge huge thing and it's made up of lots and lots of little factors that you do and things that maybe even stem before they even walk in the building things that we we put on our outside on our gates on our walls outside the building that we shout out from our prospectus and our open evenings that we talk about um, in home parent meetings before the pupils even join the school that we talk about in summer school before they've stepped foot as a year seven in September 
these are all things that are, are trying to um, communicate what our vision is and our culture and our ethos. It comes through in our recruitment process. We're trying to choose teachers who are on board with our culture and our vision. Um, and so, yeah, so there, there's a whole lot of complex stuff that we're thinking about that we're trying to put into place before anybody even walks in the building. Once people are in the building, what we're trying to do is achieve a level of consistency um, that um, means the pupils have a more stable and happy um, and continual experience. Um, uh, things like making sure that the behaviour management system uh, is watertight, because if it's not watertight, then no teacher is going to apply it and no pupil is going to believe in it. And by behaviour management, I, I don't just mean the kind of the naughty points or whatever each school calls them. I also mean the rewards. Um, and I think that's something we got better in as, as we were developing the school is working out what to reward and how to reward it. So we came up with various overlaying reward systems on different timescales. So if you were doing well as a team in one lesson, then there would be a way of rewarding the team in that lesson. If you as an individual were doing well over the week, there was a reward for you at the end of the week. If you were doing well over a half term, there was a reward for you at the end of that half term uh, and into the ne next half term, it would spill over. If you're doing well over the course of a term, as a class, there was a reward. Uh, as an individual, there was a reward. Um, there was over the course of a year, if you're maintaining great behavior and great effort and attitude over the whole year, there was a reward. So for those who needed the short-term reward, there was something there. For those who could um, apply themselves and work hard continually, the rewards got bigger and better the, the, the longer and more continual they were able to. And on, can I just ask on, that, on a practical level, how are you kind of tracking these the, this good behaviour and what kind of rewards are we talking about? Right, so on a weekly basis, the rewards that we're talking about are on a Friday afternoon within school hours, two hours of enrichment. So sport, music, drama, art, something that you've chosen. Or if you haven't met the threshold, then two hours of detention. They're trying to make the disparity between the accumulation of right choices and the accumulation of wrong choices pretty big. And that's, so, sorry, just to clarify that, so that's, there's no middle ground there. It's either a reward or detention on that Friday afternoon. Exactly. So we have a payslip system where we're tracking what we call merits and demerits. Uh, we're tracking homework completion, um, tracking attendance and punctuality, uh, track, tracking um, detentions and, and kind of bigger consequences, adding those up, and at the end of the week, um, if they meet a certain threshold above that, then they go off to enrichment, and anything below that, they're in detention. And is that done electronically, or is it a paper-based system for the for the merits? Yeah, I mean, because our classes in year seven, eight, and nine are taught in their form groups for every subject, it means that they can move from one class to the next and take a clipboard with them. And on that clipboard, we can then track very easily our, next to each name the merits and demerits. We have moved, though, to um, to using Sims to track those points. Um, I mean, I used to find the clipboard such an easy system, but um, Sims allows us to aggregate the points centrally more quickly. So that's why we've moved electronically. Um, and then every week, yeah, we run a quick report to work out who's got what 
uh, as a weekly total, and then that turns out a list of who needs to go to detention and who's free to go off and do their enrichment choice. And do the do you find the kids kind of buy into this? Is this one of one of the the policies that has had the biggest effect on on culture and behaviour? Yeah, it's been pretty significant. We didn't have it in our first year, um, first year at KSA. We introduced it in the second year. Um, I think the level of clarity that they have day by day uh, and over the week and at the end of the week on their pay slip, it gives them a breakdown of where they got their points, where they got their demerits, so they can see. And it's that level of transparency and data that is uh, helps them have a conversation with their form teacher or their parents or both about how they're doing each week. And then you can say to a parent, you know, we've noticed there's a there was a trend this week where they were coming in late or we think they did it they did a fantastic job, perfect homework completion, or um, they've got a record number of merits this week, which is brilliant. Is that lack is that um, that uh, providing that clarity um, with the with the numbers in black and white that um, makes it much easier for them to see that we're following through, that when a demerit has been issued it's been recorded, when a merit has been issued it's been recorded. Um, so yeah, so that's on the weekly basis. On the half-termly basis, um, if the team, there's also a team system of collecting points at the end of every lesson, and if the mean points that they, that 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 each class has got over the course of the half term is of a certain threshold, then there's a team prize, and it could be a pizza party, a Halloween party, a film afternoon. Uh, if it's in the summer, it's a barbecue um, or a, a carousel of of sports activities, things like that, that the team are rewarded with. And if they haven't met that threshold, then that particular team that afternoon um, carries on with normal lessons. Um, so we're trying to create a balance of incentives and disincentives. Um, what else? Um, at the end of each half term, if your individual payslip average is of a certain threshold, next half term you get to wear a silver or gold wristband, which gives you different privileges um, for certain things around the school. What kind of privileges? It might be first choice on enrichment and lunchtime activities. It might be use of the sofas at the back of the classroom for reading time. It might be that sort of thing. First choice on whatever we've got open to first choices on. Sometimes we get um, um, ad hoc trips going out that someone's organised. There's space for six people. We've suddenly got some tickets for something. Then we'll be able to get, award those to the gold wristband earners. That sort of thing. That's that's fascinating. And again, is is it fair to say it's the it's the consistency and the kind of clarity and almost almost in a sense it sounds to me like it's it's an objective system, not the kind of subjective that you often get in schools where kids often say like the, the biggest complaint I ever get from kids is when they feel teachers are not being consistent, when they feel they're being treated differently by different teachers or um, treated different to someone else in the same class by that by that same teacher if that makes sense and kids kids hate that kids hate feel when they feel they've been treated unfairly but this seems to me like this is very much an objective system where the teachers are aware of the rules the kids are aware of the rules and as long as everybody sticks by them there's there's kind of no comeback from the kids because it's there in black and white what's going to happen to them what the consequences are and I like the way you described it as the the choices that they made it's it, they have a choice over every action that they do and they know what the consequences are going to be so the kind of responsibility falls back onto them is is that the kind of 
underlying ethos of it. Absolutely right. So I've talked a lot about culture, and I said culture is our number one, consistency is our number two. Um, so it comes back to hiring and recruitment decisions that we make hiring decisions based on the, our perceived impression of how well they're going, the teacher is going to be consistent with our ethos and our policies. Um, and very much um, trying to get teachers to um, award rewards and sanctions for, the, for exactly the same thing from one classroom to the next because of exactly that, that sort of unfairness when a teacher might give a demerit for something that another teacher wouldn't and that, that's unfair on the pupils. So we, we benchmark against each other to make sure that we're giving merits and demerits for the same thing but also new joiners will spend some time watching um, experienced KSA teachers uh, so that they know where the where the where the line is, um, and so that's one point to make is that we on new new teachers are onboarded quite carefully. We don't just throw them in front of a load of pupils uh, and expect them to know the rules as well as the pupils do. And the second point that helps us with the consistency is making sure that what we're awarding merits and demerits for is is a kind of for black and white behaviours not sort of marginal, well, was it him, was it her, did they really do that, did they not really do that? Um, and so, for example, when the teacher's talking, we wouldn't expect a pupil to call out, we wouldn't expect pupils to be talking. Um, and that then makes it easier that if one person does, it's quite clear where the voices come from, and we can give a, a demerit clearly. If it's ambiguous, then we wouldn't we'd kind of, you know, hedge our bets, but not just flippantly award demerits. Um, and for the same reason, then, we have a, a, a kind of a general rule of thumb that we wouldn't issue a demerit if we hadn't explained what behaviour we wanted. I see. Suddenly busting out a demerit, saying, right, that's a demerit. And they're like, well, hold on, you didn't tell me that that was worthy of a demerit. Then, that, again, that's not fair. And so... We try and keep our, our behaviours, kind of the ones that we're expecting, not expecting, to be pretty transparent and, and clear and um, react accordingly. And there are some things that don't deserve a demerit, of course. There are you know, some things like um, some levels of non-compliance or some levels of dis being distracted or slouching just require a bit of a non-verbal cue or walking into their line of sight or a quick tap on their desk or walking a little bit closer towards their table to kind of get them like, oh, okay, he's coming. Um, so learning strategies like that, practicing them in line management meetings with your coach, practicing them or talking about them in whole school meetings to make sure that we're all, all on the same page. This is part of, part of our regular conversations. And are they, um, are the things that constitute demerits and merits, are they written down anywhere or yeah. did they kind of evolve over time? No, they had to be written down because we needed a code system to put on the on the spreadsheet on the clipboard. Ah, right. So it would be, for example, disrespect to a pupil, disrespect to a member of staff, disrespect to property, um, deliberately uh, after reminders and gestures and support and nudging, uh, deliberately not getting on with anything, deliberately slouching, deliberately just being obtrusive. Um, and then the other, the other one was disruption of the lesson, like you're being unprofessional, kind of calling out that sort of thing. And in terms of the in in terms of the merits, are you do you reward 
both kind of achievement and also other qualities such as teamwork and politeness or is it is it one or the other that you're rewarding good question um so merits tend to be given out for effort and attainment and um not just effort in classwork but kind of effort in in their attitude like sitting up putting their hand up being involved in the lesson asking and answering questions being a, a good team player um, so that was on the individual level, but I also briefly mentioned that we would um, give the team a, um, a, a point or a series of points at the end of the lesson, and they were looking at how mindful the team had been as a whole towards each other, how much they'd achieved together as a unit, how professional they'd been, and how prepared they'd been. And so there was a maximum of four points, one point for each of those letters. And can I ask, because um, we have a system in our school which is smart rewards, which is, uh, I see it in quite a few schools that I visit where, again, we're rewarding people for motivation, attitude, teamwork and so on. But one problem I, I often encounter is um, kind of remem- remembering to reward the kids. So, for example, a child will give a brilliant answer, um, but I'll be in the middle of kind of, of teaching. So I think, right, well, I can't actually what we're supposed to do sorry is we've got to go and kind of sign their planners to to say that we've awarded them one of one of these but sometimes it's just not practical for me to do it at that given time um and obviously um things lose their effect if there's a bit of a time lag between them so if if um a teacher is kind of observing some really good behaviors and as you say students sitting up or working together really well what are the actual practicalities of them awarding this merit do they go over to the student's clipboard and sign it um as it's happened or is it kind of at the end of the lesson the teachers kind of kept a note of what needs to be recorded and then records it all at once just on a practical level how, how does it work interesting so when we used to run the clipboard system rather than the sim system the the clipboard is one clipboard for the whole class with a list of their names on it ah right individual pupil so it'd just be a matter of picking up the clipboard either while you're in mid-flow talking to the class and trying to do two things at once and fill in the the tracker um, or you know, taking a breath and filling it in or just doing it at the end of the lesson just say yeah okay so you you and you you're going to get merits uh, for this and you 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 and you and you you you're going to get merits for that um, but sometimes some things didn't even need to be a merit we just do a shout out either a spot shout out there in the moment or a series of shout outs at the end of the lesson and, and that's where the teacher says uh, identifies a pupil what they've done really well uh, and then we do give them two claps and that could be then and there, like I said, or it could be at the end of the lesson. And then we try and instill the culture of them noting that in, other, in their teammates and them giving each other shout-outs. So I'd like to give uh, Rahana a shout-out because she helped me with my work today. I'd like to give Layla a shout-out because um, she was trying really hard and I know that she finds maths difficult. Or I'd like to give... Um, Joseph a shout out because um, he gave an excellent answer whatever it is and, and they kind of yeah give each other shout outs and does that is that something again that works with with all age groups um, yeah and if you start as with any of these things there are two points I'd make if you start them at the beginning in year seven then they just become an assumed part of the culture you know what the year sevens don't know any different so like yep okay fine great so that's the first point you start them early on don't yeah. you later on and the second is that some of them have a natural shelf life and um, like some of our, our clapping and our clicks and, and chants and things they tend to taper off along you know in line with the pupils energy for them 
towards, depending on what they are, towards the end of year seven or somewhere through year eight or somewhere through year nine. But shout outs, you know, we can certainly do throughout year, up to year nine and beyond. Everyone loves a shout out. <laughs> and if you um, if you get a student who kind of joins your school who hasn't been in this in this system and in this culture for for, for right the way through their school experience, um, how long? And I know it's, it's going to be different for, for each student, but how long on average does it take for them to kind of buy into this culture and, and get used to the way things work? Um, like we do with, with um, staff, there's a certain amount of onboarding before they um, before they set foot inside a classroom. So they'll have a home visit, just like everybody else has done. They'll come in um, a day or two before they're due to have a, a full start. They might do some baseline tests, but they might also be introduced to their form teacher the head of year will probably, or someone will be timetabled um, when they're not teaching to go and to go through some of the school routines with them, so that they know what our acronyms mean, so that they know um, expectations in class, they know what merits and demerits mean, and how to earn them. Um, so they go through some of the practicalities before they set foot inside the classroom. And by and large, I mean it's it's a happy place, it's a safe place. You know, probably, the reason why they're joining partway through the year is probably because their last school was neither happy nor safe for whatever reason, or they didn't feel that they could be themselves. Maybe they were in trouble at their previous school, and that tends to happen when, you know, when you're, I don't know, when you're backed into a corner when you think the only way you can prove yourself is by, you know, by, I, I don't know, you know, it, it taps into their self-identity. That's probably why they've moved on from their previous school. Maybe they've moved to the area. I don't know, but things have been unsettled for them. I guess to join to join a school partway through a year. So when they come to our place and they find well everything's quite settled, it's quite calm. Oh, this is a bit of a haven for me, uh, and they settle in pretty quickly. And hopefully, yeah, they get on with stuff pretty well. Our our onboarding and acclimatisation process is reasonably smooth. Okay. Well, if we can, if we can turn our attention now to specifically um, routines that you employ within the maths classroom, um, can you talk us through, um, yeah, what what happens as soon as your students walk through the door? So just to emphasise that this is not about it being a maths classroom. No matter what teacher I would have been at KSA, French, English, maths, science, whatever, uh, the routines are the same, and that comes back to that consistency. Um, and the importance of that consistency and those routines and expectations across the classroom down the corridor. Um, so, that being said, then the first routine would be um, it, it would have depended whether the lesson meant that I was just walking into where they were already sat down and just taking over from the previous teacher, or whether they were arriving at the door having come from a different classroom. Um, so, with either of those two scenarios, whether, whether they come in or whether they're already sat down, there's a three, four, five maybe minute do now, which is a, a starter in other language, um, and it's a, a math, for, for me obviously it would be a math task that they do in silence. And uh, two reasons that I want them to do it in silence. One, I think they're going to be more productive, and two, they're going to be more productive at that stage then I've got an early opportunity um, to say well done and to reward them and to say fantastic, uh, which which again comes back to that culture piece. So the only way they're going to be productive in silence is if you pitch the do now so that it's accessible for everybody. If you 
try and make it too hard or too novel, too groovy. Um, and I've done that, and I've had my fingers burnt. I've, I've found great code-breaking exercises from somewhere on the internet, and thought, oh, that will make a good starter, because we did that yesterday. And then they put their hand up, or they start talking, and I have to go over and help people, then that defeats the, the kind of the, the productivity size, and it's confusing if the expectation is for it to be done in silence. Um, and then it's not, and it's not possible to do it in silence because actually I've made it too novel. So anyway, that's what they do now. Is that's what the first uh, part of the routine is: come in in silence, get your stuff out, and do the do now. Three Could you just give us a quick example, Bruno, of what are the kind of questions that might be in that do now? Yeah, sure. Um, I think an appropriate do now once they're in year ten or eleven would be one of Corbett's five a day. Yeah. Um, if if it was more key stage three, well, my year sevens would do times table rock stars for six months, and then it was done. So that you know they'd have the sheet, they'd have the music, and what have you. Um, in other year groups, year eight and year nine, it might be revisiting yesterday's topic, last week's topic. It might be some warm-up skills for today's topic, um, that sort of thing. But it would, would be reasonably, ex yeah, accessible. Um, something maybe first question or two would be pretty low barrier to entry, as in not too much of a demand. For example, like a, um, a true or false question, an odd one out question, a circle the something question, circle the prime number, circle the, uh, you know, circle the equation where the gradient is two, something that even if you're the most reluctant learner or you've arrived late or you've arrived with a bit of an attitude, you can't help but but finish a true or false question or a circle or something question. Yes, nice. They far past that first one or two questions, they start to develop some momentum and they carry on. Whereas if you hit them with increase 1,200 pounds by 6.2%, <laughs> yeah. they're to do that in silence and they've just walked into the classroom, they're not going to thank you for it. And yes. So, yeah. You can see what, what, how minutely we think about culture. Absolutely. That's the do now. What What happens then? Then we'd mark it together, so they'd take the green pens out, um, and it's either the answers are on the board and we'll discuss some of them, or we'll go through each one one by one, or we'll get the pupils to talk about their answers and their methods and discuss and, and what would happen if I'd, if it was this, who did it this way, who did it that way, um, and then we move on. And so what what happens in terms of the routines of the lesson is, is, do we then just go into the kind of lesson that you described before or are there any specific things in terms of behavior management or, or other routines that need to be present every single lesson in your eyes? They're the main things. Okay, And over the last 18 months, I've been visiting lots of schools and watching maths lessons and the entry routine is probably, if I could pull a lever or press a switch, it would be the one thing that I'd introduce into every math lesson. To get that done well sets off the lesson uh, beautifully, off to a great start. It sets the right tone. It gets them busy, it gets them happy, it gets them feeling positive about coming to maths. And the contrary is true if you don't have clear and established routines. So the pupils might mingle in, dawdle in, chat while they're coming in, and then you're already on the back foot as the teacher because you're having to plead with them, remind them, get this equipment out, come over to the equipment box to get your equipment out. 
remember to take your book out, remember to turn to find the blank page, remember to draw, put your margins in, remember to stop talking, remember to take your coat off, your bag off, remember to stop turning around. All that stuff, if it's not clear, if it's not just a habit of how you come in and how you get on with work and how that work is supposed to be done, and yeah, then then you set the, each lesson off, off, to, off to a pretty bad start and it's difficult to recover from that. And if, if you're, for example, an NQT or just, just an individual teacher listening to this and you know for a fact that these policies aren't in place in your school and probably you don't have the influence or certainly not in the short term to, to bring them in as a whole school like, like you have at KSA, is there anything that individual teachers can do to get to simulate as best as possible the kind of culture that you have in your maths lessons is it as simple as trying to establish that that entry routine would that be the place that you'd advise people to start with yeah 100 percent. and that that's the kind of thing that i'm spending some of my time doing is visiting schools and helping them uh work out where things could be better and typically it's it's at the start of the lesson and so we spend a lot of time walking it through so my advice would be the pupils come into your lesson as they normally do. Nothing seems any 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 different. And once they're in, sit them down, and and kind of put on a bit more of your serious teacher voice. Make sure they're listening. Make sure they've got empty hands, and make sure they're looking at you. And talk to them or say something like, "Guys, I really love teaching you, and I'm impressed. Pretty much every single day, every minute of every day, working with you." But I think there's a level that we could reach that's above us that we're not quite getting to yet. And the way we're going to do that, I think, from watching how things are going, is to make sure that every second of every lesson counts. And that, in, that means that we've got to start each lesson in a really productive way. And so here's how I'd like us to start. When you come into the lesson, I'd like you to go straight to your desk, get your equipment out. You know that the maths equipment that we're going to need on a daily basis is your black pen, your green pen, and your pencil. So you get those three things out, and there will be a do now on the board, or it will be on the desk in front of you, but it's always going to be there. And as soon as you're at, de at your desk, with those three pieces of equipment out, you begin. That's going to take three or four minutes. We'll call time on the clock, and then we'll go through the answers. So I want to practice that now. I don't want to wait till tomorrow's lesson to get it right. So we're going to rehearse this and restart the lesson. But let me just walk through it one more time and I will physically go over to the door and I'll pretend to be a pupil and I'll pretend to greet myself as the teacher at the door. Hello, Mr. Reddy. Walk to my desk in silence. Take out my three pieces of equipment. Look up at the board to check what the starter is. Off I go. So the pupils have watched me pretend to be one of them and get it right. And then I'll say, right, okay, please stand up in silence. Typically, that won't be done in silence the first time. So there's my first opportunity to let them know where my threshold is. So if one of them speaks or grumbles or huffs and puffs or is a bit slow, I'll say, okay, guys, sit back down. Look, the, this section of the room, this row over here, this column here, fantastic. You nailed it. I said, please stand up in silence. That's exactly what happened. Let's try that again. Please stand up in silence. And by and large, the second time you ask them to do that, they're, they're with you. They're like, okay. This guy's serious. This is where his line was. He's right. We didn't meet that line the first time. We got it better the second time, and that's why he's saying, well done. Okay, we get him now. Right, first column, please file out. Second column, please file out. Good. Third column, fourth column. Right, okay. You're going to now stand at the door, and so make sure their line is straight and facing forwards. They're not chatting to each other. They're not leaning on the wall. 
and you remind them again, okay team, remember the expectations are when you come in, a quick good morning or good afternoon to me, we'll make quick eye contact. Uh, you walk in to your desk, three pieces of equipment out, the do now's on the board. And then I'll probably just repeat that but with one word. So greet me, well, okay, greeting, one, two, equipment, three, do now. Just to try and keep those instructions in threes and keep them really short. Greeting, equipment, do now. But even the kid who's barely been tuning into what you're saying, they just hear those three words and they just follow those. Greeting, equipment, do now. Right, come on in. Good morning, good morning, good morning, good morning. Hello, nice to see you. Good morning, good morning, lovely, welcome. Hey, great. Come on in, good, thank you, good, good morning, good. Do now's on the board. Come to your desk in silence. Good, good. And hopefully that time they go to the desk, they're starting the do now, off they go. That's been the best version of the rehearsal that you can imagine. And at that point you can say, well done, fantastic. Look, you came in and today, or that, that time round, it took us 40 seconds for the last person to get to their desk and working. Brilliant. We've just bought ourselves back so much learning time. Well done, team. And then you start to float around the room, ticking the, the questions that they're answering for the do now. If that doesn't go so well and they, didn't, and they did start talking on the way in, so, okay, stop, 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 stop. Come back out. Come back out. Let's do that again. Okay, remember you're coming to your desk in silence. Okay, in we go. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Good, well done, thank you, good. That's been done in silence, great. Carry on, good, good morning, good morning. And they come to their desk. And, and then, yeah, you, give, you have that opportunity to say well done again. And if, if you are, again, a teacher listening to this, and you're thinking, all right, I'm, I'm absolutely loving the sound of this, and that is the, the ideal, I'd love it to be like that. But I've got a year 11 class, they're a little bit ropey, um, and we've got just over, what, like 110 days or whatever till their, their GCSE exam. Would you be advising to, to try something like that within a year 11 class, or is that kind of too late in the day? Is this something that if you're going to do it, you've got to get the kids early um, on it? Yeah. Like pick your battles, okay? That doesn't mean so. Yeah, it gets. If you're not doing this already, then build up your confidence in getting this routine right with a younger year group that's a bit more malleable still at this stage. With the year 11s, you should be nudging towards that, but it, it may not work to go full on at this stage until you know that you can pull this off. You've got the right patter. You've got the right level of expectation. You know how to deal with the different scenarios that might arise. So get it working with your seven and eight, and then bust it out on the year 11s. But really what I want to be saying to people at this stage in the year, already it's February, but be thinking about September and day one. Yes. Ready to implement these systems and routines from day one, because that's when you should be trying to get it right um, in, in September with your year seven, eight, nine, 10, 11. Perfect. That, that's 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 fascinating stuff, that Bruno. Um, and if we can move on to something related to this, yeah. um, can I? One? Oh, please, yeah, please do, please do. It's what happens after the do now, which is something that I see that irks me in other classrooms, which is everybody having to copy down the learning objective or everybody having to glue something into their books. Those two things are the biggest waste of learning time around the country you could imagine. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no no copying down of learning objectives, no gluing at all. No, if you're lucky, there's copying down of the title and the date. But to be honest, we worked off worksheets that we made ourselves, and they got filed in a in a day folder that they carried around with them. That meant that we could preprint the titles, leave them the space to fill in the date. That's all they then had to do. Put the name at the top, maybe, 
and then at the end of the lesson they'd file it in their folders well actually that that brings me on to a question that I'm, I'm glad you've reminded me of that now because um certainly in our school there's major emphasis on um, on book scrutinies and and books looking exactly the same in terms of having features such as uh, must have classwork written in the top left the date at top right title underlined and then whenever a lesson's finished it should be underlined um and then leave half a space half a page of kind of blank space in case the teacher needs to give feedback for that and then start the next lesson on the next page and so on Do, does your culture kind of extend to what you expect to see in books or does that not matter as much to you? Um, hmm. No, I don't think it has. I mean, we'd want work to be neat, uh, I guess. Um, but different subjects were operating slightly differently. So in maths, we were making our own worksheets. In English, to start with, they were doing worksheets too, but they moved towards using A4 books lined books um, so it was kind of up to the head of department how they were, how they were operating things in their subject or even down to the year group and the teacher um, but nothing like leave half a page or make sure that um, you've done something in the top left corner and something in the top right I think where we were making work packs and worksheets we numbered the worksheets we built up our, our curriculum we could see what the next six or seven weeks were going to look like so lesson one of week one would say um, one out of 25 lessons with the title. So um, simplifying fractions. Well, no, we probably wouldn't start with lesson one. Uh, introduction to fractions. One slash 25. So that means lesson one out of 25. Next lesson, um, equivalent fractions. Two out of 25. So that way when they're filing it in their folder, it's almost turning into, into a small book. You've got one out of 25 followed by two out of 25. I see. I see. Well, that, again, leads me on to, to something else. What What's your policy on homework um, in maths? How often do kids get it? What form does the homework take? And um, kind of how is it marked? What kind of feedback do you, do you give? What kind of dialogue between teacher and student occurs? Okay. Well, <laughs> the homework is daily for English, Maths and Reading in Year 7, 8 and 9. In Year 10 and 11, it's twice a week. Um, so let's start with the daily homework in Year 7, 8 and 9 for Maths. So every single night, Monday to Friday, they've got a piece of paper which is two-sided and contains whatever... I, don't, I couldn't tell you exactly how many questions. It, it's certainly not a matter of what's the maximum number of questions we can fit on the page we give space for workings so in some cases it might be six questions three on the front three on the back depending on the nature of the question it could be a total of 20 questions it could be as many, it could be as few as two um, it just it just depends but basically it's one piece of a4 printed both sides um, that then is handed in the following morning to their form teacher in form time because we have daily morning form time so they hand in their maths homework in one pile, their English homework in another pile, and so on. Uh, they're, they're, the form teacher or an extra adult in the classroom um, quickly flicks through the homework, checks that it's, it's up to sort of basic neatness standards, that all the questions have been attempted, that by and large instructions have been followed. So for example, if it said draw the graph in pencil, that's been done. If it said um, write three sentences, that three sentences have been written. So if it passes those checks, 
then it goes back to the teacher, it ends up in a teacher folder half an hour later and that the teacher can go and collect. If it's not one of those things, so if it's not neat, if it's not been completed or the instructions haven't been followed, it gets shuffled in a different direction, it ends up with the head of year by the end of the day and at the end of the day the, the head of year will run a homework catch-up session where the pupil is then expected to uh, repeat the homework and um, bring it up to the standard that they hadn't. Uh, meanwhile a text has gone out at lunchtime and somewhere on the system it will be recorded so that they don't get the homework bonus at the end of the week on their payslip. Um, in terms of marking, you asked about marking, so that's five pieces of maths homework per child per week. It, it's, it wouldn't be possible, well no, sorry, obviously lots of things are possible, that's not <laughs> It would be pretty challenging and maybe overly onerous and, and the cost-benefit ratio is, is probably doesn't make it necessary for the teacher to mark every single piece of homework. Um, far from it. We'd probably mark most pieces of homework quickly together in class. Teachers would mark some. Um, is how we get around the marking. In terms of lots of feedback, um, I think the feedback if we're marking it in class tends to happen there on the spot. It's kind of whole class feedback, rather than individual feedback. And if we're marking it, then it will be um, some light comments. You know, depending on our, how our workload's going, maybe we've got the opportunity to write 25 next step comments. Maybe we don't. Maybe we focus on the most vulnerable children and make sure we write next step comments on theirs. Or if there's you know a, a, a massive misconcept that's going on repeatedly then clearly we need to write a few notes on their piece of paper to exemplify um, exactly what to, what needs to be done instead. Uh, but it's not this teacher writes a comment, pupil then needs to respond to the comment, teacher then needs to write a comment. Where does that stop? Is that <laughs> uh, no. We're seeing each other every day. We have daily maths lessons. The teacher teaches a single year group. So they know the, the pupils in the year group, they know the maths that they're studying inside out. They know how to bring that maths into the, the misconceptions, the problems they're having, back into their planning every single day because that's all they care about and all they think about is one year group at a time uh, or one year group for the whole year. So you know, the, the loop is closed in lots of different ways but it's not closed by copious amounts of teacher writing. I mean, I'd be interested in, in looking at Michaela's model. They're doing a lot online for homework, and I suspect that does a, um, a lot of good things for the pupils, but probably also, yeah, must also save the teachers a huge amount of time. Yeah, it's again, it's it's a cliche to say it, but it's it's the biggest burden on teachers. The the probably the main reason so many people leave the profession is is the 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 marking and and as you say it's I remember when I first started so I'm in my eleventh year of teacher now it was enough to mark um, and then that was that was the end of it obviously maybe a comment and then you followed up in class but now there is this expectation of this continual dialogue between students and teacher and as you say it's it's never it, it in theory could go on um, in you know forever and ever and ever this this uh, continual feedback loop and I I'm I'm not convinced at how effective it is myself. Yeah, exactly. And just to be clear, that if anybody wants to kind of lay that at Ofsted store, then that's not fair or true. That this is coming through from SLT for whatever reason that they've heard another school that that this is what needs to be done. This is not what needs to be done. And Sean Harford and Ofsted are very clear that they don't expect to see 
written feedback. They, what they want to see or what they're, they're looking at is how teachers are giving feedback and over the fullness of time how effective that feedback is but it's up to schools to figure out the system that works best for their pupils and their teachers um, to make that clear. <laughs> yeah, no, per- perfect. And could you just explain how does homework differ then in year, in year 10 and 11 with these twice weekly homeworks? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's similar, right? They, hand, they have a two-sided piece of homework um, or they, depending on the teacher, depending on the time of the year, depending on the year group, they might have a full exam paper to do. Um, and but they might have a week to hand that back in, so not necessarily the next day. And who who creates these homeworks, Bruno? Are these kind of centrally produced? Are they written by the teachers? Are they commercial homeworks? Yeah, written by the teacher, um, unless it's an exam, obviously. I mean, it's just written by one of the examples. But yeah, no, we we make our own worksheets, make our homeworks, um, so that the homeworks dovetail with what they've been doing in the lesson. Perfect. Um, and if I can just ask you, um, aside from the kind of culture that you've mentioned and the, the homeworks that you've mentioned and the routines and lessons, is there anything else as a maths department, any other strategies that, that you've kind of brought in that have been particularly successful or effective? Um, yeah, okay, good question. So, sorting out times tables, um, I think a lot of people know me for that. Uh, making sure the curriculum is fit for purpose I think people know me for that those two have been pretty big ones can you just just for those who don't can you just just expand on those please Bruno so first just times tables what what's where did that kind of have you always had that belief of the importance of them and where where did the idea for for times tables rock stars come from I I didn't have a clue when I started KSA I'd only done two years teaching and then I left and you know I'd been out of teaching for three years so I made plenty of mistakes in my first year at KSA. Um, you know, I was very green. Um, but at the end of that first year, I did do some reflection, thinking, well, they haven't really made the progress that I want them to, and there's a number of things holding them back. And one of them is the, is like the very basics. I can't teach them how to simplify fractions if they can't find factors, and they can't find factors if their times table knowledge is ropey. Um, and because I, it was basically a department for one and there was no no one there to check me or to bounce ideas off at KSA. I just thought, well, no one's therefore going to tell me off if I decide to dedicate some lesson time to times table practice. Uh, it's not something that I'd heard of secondary schools doing much, at least not on a daily basis, because I think a lot of head teachers would have hung me for taking up. Uh, but I just thought, look, there's, yeah, there's no way around this, but we'll do this KSA style, which means we'll kind of, we'll do this to the max. Um, so every day, three minutes, bit of rock music, bit of, uh, give them a rock name, bit of joy factor, me prancing around in the early stages with a wig on or with an inflatable guitar, just to <laughs> G up the level of enthusiasm and then and see how it goes from there. Um, and we just stick to one table at a time for each week. They see a bit of progress each day of the day. They kind of get hooked early on to that feeling of, oh, actually, hold on, I did better than I did yesterday, and I did better than I did the day before that. Um, anyway, so yeah, it went from there. I didn't realise that it was it was going to work so so well, but I'm pleased that it did. And what's what's the latest kind of figures on times table rock stars? Because it's fair to say, I, I know you you're a very modest guy, and and you won't want to big this up too much, but it's it's become a bit of a, I think it's fair to say a national phenomenon. Um, what how, do you know how many schools are using it now? 
Uh, you're right. This is the most uncomfortable question you've asked me. <laughs> um, look, I'm just, I'm, I'm just a teacher who's not in the classroom at the moment much. Uh, so, um, yeah, I don't, I, I really don't feel very comfortable, uh, like saying how well it's going just because I get embarrassed. But, um, but yeah, let, let's say, yeah, we're well clear of 2,000 schools now, 300,000 children nearly two million questions being answered every day um new so yeah, 100 150 new schools joining each week um it's going in the direction that it should be going it's not a direction it's all grown organically i've been very conscious to not really talk about it very much um and what's lovely is that people have said very kind things on forums or on facebook or on twitter or mentioned it in places um on, yeah, because they because it's made a difference, or they've liked the way the pupils have reacted, and that's the best uh, the best feeling that I could get from it. Uh, and when I get an email to say our kids love it, or a parent emails and says that they're wanting to race through their dinner so that they can go and play times table rock stars, they've given up Minecraft. Um, you know, we can't pull them away from from this. They're so excited. Thank you very much. Then. Yeah, that that means I, I sleep really well at night. Um, that's that's fantastic, and I, I promise I won't ask you any more questions about that. But yeah, and there'll be a link for anyone who's listening who who hasn't heard of it. There'll be a link in the show notes uh, to, to how you can get involved in that. Um, so let's let's move on now, Bruno. Then you, you you touched on curriculum design, and this this is an area that um, I've had several questions on Twitter to ask you about this, and it's certainly an area that um, I, I I certainly want to delve into, and that that's the concept of mastery. And the way I want to kind of kick this off is um, I saw a tweet that you retweeted. I don't know if it's Today or yesterday um, and it was from the National Association of Mathematics Advisors NAMA and it was the five myths of mastery um, and I think this mastery is one of the most misunderstood uh, concepts in mathematics and I just I'd like to just start this discussion by just reading through these five myths and I just wonder if you could kind of just pick up on them either individually or collectively and just explain why you think mastery is so misunderstood and and what what you kind of take it to mean if that makes sense so the the first kind of myth here is mastery in mathematics has a single clear definition the second one mastery in mathematics does not allow for any differentiation the third one there is a special curriculum which is the mastery curriculum the fourth one mastery in mathematics involves repetitive practice and finally mastery in mathematics means you have to use particular textbooks so would you agree they are all myths and could you just talk us through yeah, what 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 mastery means to you, and what why you believe in it so much? Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, sometimes my, my my name gets used rightly or wrongly or associated with mastery. Uh, I, I'll tell in the fullness of time whether that's a good thing. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is that um, at the end of, so at the end of that first year at KSA, when I was reflecting over the summer, like where things hadn't been going so well was that I'd been moving on too quickly for these pupils. And we're talking about pupils who come with lots of maths baggage and lots of other baggage. It's one of the, yeah. All right, I could tell you, tell you plenty of statistics about how, uh, about impoverished life in Listen Grove, but anyway. Uh, and so I figured I'm not doing them any favors by moving the topic on every two weeks. There's, there's something wrong with this. Uh, and yet this is the advice or this is what I was able to download off the internet at the time what other people in other schools were doing 
Um, and so I, I kind of yeah started rowing in the other direction and started thinking we need to spend longer. Let's uh, make sure we go back to basics. Let's make sure we um, crack the four operations and place value. Let's make sure we really understand fractions and great depths and not just kind of try and charge through everything in eight lessons and then hope that they retain it and then teach exactly the same thing in year eight and then exactly the same thing in year nine. I could just see this being played out in a, as a horrendous, horrendous kind of maths horror show. Um, so we just decided to spend more time on things. Uh, and the lovely Dr. Helen Drury from ARC, who was the network lead for maths at the time at ARC, came in. Um, we discussed the direction I was going in with the curriculum. She thought it was a good plan. We got the other ARC heads of maths together around a table. We refined what I had, they inputted, we all inputted, uh, and came up with what somehow got dubbed or named um, a, a mastery curriculum. Uh, yeah, I'm, I wasn't responsible for coming up with that word. I think it was a word that was starting to emerge in DFE circles or you know in, in math circles somewhere. But um, so inadvertently, I, I get the association with mastery curriculum um, and. If there is such a thing, then the the principles on which I based my curriculum, I guess, are, are what people assume or think is a mastery curriculum. So that's spending more time on fewer things, um, and then and going into more depth, I guess, with each of those with, with those fewer things to embed greater understanding. Um, and then some things that I added to that were separating certain concepts during first teaching that tend to get taught together and then tend to get conflated in the pupils' heads, like area and perimeter get taught back to back, like area of a parallelogram and area of a trapezium get taught at the same time, like circumference and area of a circle get taught at the same time, like mean, median and mode, or Pythagoras followed by trigonometry, all these things tend to get taught more or less back to back and then confused. So. We decided, right, we're going to separate these out by a number of weeks or months or even years um, on first teaching, and then we'll bring them back together. So area and perimeter are, are, are kind of cousins of each other, but separate them out on first teaching and then bring them back in a discussion later on. Let's look at how area relates to perimeter and perimeter relates to area. It's uh, Just on that, Bruno, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that. So... Um, Obviously, with with my diagnostic questions, we're, we're, um, I I'm obsessed by kind of reading through mistakes and misconceptions kids have, and having spent the last year or so just going through all the data and reading the explanations, I reckon that the vast majority of misconceptions in mathematics um, that kids have are down to one of two things. The first is either misapplying algorithms, so um, kids get taught that area of a triangle is base times height divided and then divided by two, and they end up just dividing everything by two, whether it's a rectangle, whether it's a square or whatever, and you, you, see, you see that loads. But probably the more common one is exactly that. It's, it's muddling up related concepts. It's doing exactly what you said. It's confusing factors with multiples, medians with means, areas with perimeter, um, and it happens time and time again. And I, I just gave a talk today. I was just just over um, in Huddersfield, and I and I just asked teachers to put their hand up and said, "How many times have you seen uh, kids mistake related concepts?" And all hands went up. And I said, "Do any of you teach those concepts separately?" 
um, with with another topic in between or with weeks apart, and no hands went up. And it's uh, and we don't like our, our scheme of work is averages, mean, medium, mode altogether, and even trucking rangers as one of the averages, which is all other all other issue. And then area and perimeter will be together, and factors and multiples and primes inevitably together. Um, and is like is that why had you experienced the fact that kids were muddling up these related concepts and was that why you felt it was so important to split them and has it has it had the effect that students aren't making those mistakes yeah massively i mean yeah factors and multiples comes up early in year seven and you try teaching them back to back and then say okay so give me the factors of um 14 and they'd start saying well um 28 yeah 42 no, 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 factors, they're the ones that fit in. You can try and find all sorts of ways for, to get them remember. No, remember, factors are smaller. Yeah. <laughs> fit in. Fact, you know, think of all the numbers that can divide into 14. What do you mean divide into 14? Okay, don't say that. Think of all the numbers that you can multiply together to make 14. You know, you can just get your tongue twisted if you're not careful to try and make the distinction between multiples and factors. Too obvious at the start. So just concentrate on factors in whatever way you want to do it and then leave multiples for a while. Factors takes ages for them to get. It really surprised me. We had to keep going back for, to factors for weeks, um, even into the next half term, just so that they could confidently tell you and reliably remember that one was a factor of every number, that the number itself was a factor of every number, that square numbers had odd numbers of factors, that, uh, um, yeah, that you didn't have to repeat the square root of a square number twice. Yeah, of course. So I, in that, yeah, that second year when I was doing it, I decided I'm going to name these. I'm going to get some Simpsons characters together, and each Simpsons character is going to be responsible for making a different classic factors mistake. So we would then, I would the whole lesson would be around these Simpsons characters and who was making which mistake and how to make that mistake and then how to avoid that mistake. And that then just gave us a bit of a dialogue and a bit of a laugh later on to say, you know, when I'd be looking at someone's work, hi, you know what you've done there? You've just done exactly what Marge would do. Or, oh, look, that's a classic Millhouse mistake. <laughs> and it kind of took it away from it being their mistake. We'd yes. blame it on Bart or blame it on Lisa. Um, but, it, but it, yeah, at least it rose to the top in their, in their minds. And just on, just on, if we take factors for an example there, so um, we're going to separate factors from multiples. Um, but I think one of the things people often think mastery is, is is not moving on until everybody's ready to move on, until the concept itself is mastered. So with something such as factors, do you have a set amount of time that you're going to teach factors in? Or is it a case that you have a certain point that you want the students to get to a certain level of understanding, a certain objective that they need to meet? And you're going to just teach for it as much as you need until you meet that and then move on after that. You're absolutely right that one of the myths is uh, that, that you don't move on until everybody's got it. And there, for practical reasons, you can't you can't do that. You can't just hold the kids back until everybody's got it. Um, so, but, but spending more time on fewer things helps that, right? Instead of moving on after two weeks, if we're giving ourselves seven weeks to to master fractions, then those kids that are, that are just kind of the ones who miss out on a two-week curriculum, they start to get it towards the end of the second week. They're kind of then consolidating in week three, week four, week five, week seven. 
uh, week four, five, six, seven. Um, so that extra time and depth and coverage gives you more options for repetition, more op- options for embedding the concept by using manipulatives and diagrams, and just slowing everything down. So there's there, there's generally less of a need to. Um, now, there's generally less of an issue, I should say, that uh, pupils are going to be left behind because actually you're keeping people moving together with you. The the danger, if you're moving too quickly, that's when you've got an issue of, of leaving pupils behind. Um, so the problem is diminished. That's not to say it doesn't exist. So then what you have to do is, I guess what I've alluded to, is to keep stuff trickling along. So keep factors popping up in do-nows and in homeworks keep making sure they pop up as a warm-up act, as a quick quiz, or whatever it might be, to keep those skills ticking along. But you do have to keep the curriculum going. You can't just say, right, we're going we're gonna to do this until the 30th out of 30 people <laughs> jolly well being able to recite the factors of 64 backwards. Um, yeah, you, you've got to move on and you've got to then use your intervention opportunities, whether it's keeping them back after school in homework club, finding them at lunchtime, speaking to them in the corridor, going to their form time, um, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, no, it's a myth that mastery just means you never move on. And does it make does it make planning harder in the sense that, cause say for example, I, I, if I looked at a scheme of work and I saw, right, I've got a week to teach factors and multiples. Well, it's, it's pretty obvious that I'm going to do factors in a lesson, multiples in a lesson, probably prime numbers in a lesson, then bang them all together in the in the next lesson, and then I'm going to move on. Whereas if I'm looking and seeing, right, I've got four weeks to spend on factors, I'm going to really have to think carefully about exactly what I'm going to do with those four weeks. So does what does it make planning harder? And, and where do your staff kind of look for those activities that are, and those resources that are going to be happening in kind of weeks three and four of a particular concept? Uh, okay, so our, right, first thing in, in in most of our year groups, so where we're able to pull this off, we've got a teacher or two teachers just teaching one year group. So their planning time is devoted to thinking about a single age group and a single part of the curriculum. They're not having to split their attention and their time between planning for a year 7 class and a year 11 class and a set 1 year 11 class and a set 4 year 10 class. Their focus is on teaching a a mixed ability group and repeating that three times for the three mixed ability classes, for example. So they're their planning time they can spend um, fruitfully finding the right resources or developing the right resources is, is probably more typical developing rather than finding um, when we sit down to, to create a medium term plan that basically means for the next seven weeks the next half term we plot out Monday to Friday we scratch out any whole school events that mean they're going to miss a math lesson we, we scratch out any uh, assessment lessons or lessons where we, we lose the lesson because they've, they've got uh, an exam or any, scratch out any lessons where we know they're going to be on a trip. We then put in where we want them to do the pre-learning test, where we want them to do the post-learning test. So we put in some of our fixed things. Um, then we start to work out, okay, so that means we've got out of the, the six weeks that we thought we had, we've actually only got 23 lessons. 26 lessons or something. Right, with 26 lessons, let's work out 
remind ourselves what we're teaching. Okay, we're teaching fractions. Okay, within fractions, what are we teaching? We're teaching these five main things. What are fractions and equivalents of fractions? We're teaching adding and subtracting with different denominators. We're learning to convert into mixed numbers and improper fractions. We're finding fractions of amounts um, and something else, perhaps. Um, all right, now with each of those, let's atomize from the easiest type of question on that concept to the hardest type of question on that concept. What, what is the easiest type of question? What is the hardest type of question? And then plotting a trajectory between the easiest and the hardest. So let's take um, adding and subtracting fractions. So the easiest type of question that we might ask them to do is a half plus a half. And the hardest type of question that we might ask them to do is a mixed number plus an improper fraction. Right, now let's work out along that trajectory what are all the steps in between. What comes after a half plus a half? And what keeps us going until we eventually get to a mixed number plus an improper fraction? Okay, so we can see these are all the different question types and variations and nuances of, of adding and subtracting fractions. How many lessons is that realistically going to take us to cover? It's going to take us four lessons to cover. Right, so we want to make sure we've got four lessons of those. And we do the same with the other four concepts. And then we come up with a total. It's actually going to take us 31 lessons. Okay, we don't have 31 lessons. We're going to have to shave off a bit here. We, want, we might want to add a bit there. Um, if we're under the number of lessons we've got, we'll deliberately keep one or two lessons as blanks. Kind of, I call them cushion lessons. So that um, we don't plan a, to fill every single lesson before the term has started. We need some to remain, as, uh, to remain empty until we get there to figure out, okay, what we need to spend more time on X, Y, or Z. Does that make sense? Like yeah, the, yeah, it, it certainly does. And uh, um, and is it fair to say that you're kind of arguing against the kind of critique that if you're teaching something like factors or fractions or whatever for such a long period of time and then not revisiting it for for uh, an extended period period of time or certainly longer than you would get in a traditional schema work that kids retention suffers is that where you kind of you you your regular occurrence of fractions in do now and homework that kind of counteracts that is that fair to say well you've inadvertently brought up another ma uh, mastery myth I think which is oh nice <laughs> <Go on. laughs> I'm not sure if it was one of the five that you mentioned from NAMA but it's that you never reteach a topic um, by and large we wouldn't plan to do all of, all of that fraction material again in year 8 like, by and large what we're saying is we're going to teach it pretty well we're going to spend long enough on it we're going to go into all the conceptual understanding stuff using rep multiple representations um, so that they're pretty secure in it. Okay, so the the general plan is we don't have to completely reteach you in year eight. Um, however, that's not to say we will never touch it for another twelve months. Like you just said, it will appear in do nows, quizzes, warm ups, homeworks, so that they don't lose that skill. But also, more maybe more importantly, or equally importantly, we'll get it to deliberately feature in the next half term's unit by twinning it with whatever we're teaching that half term. So following fractions is an algebra half term. That doesn't mean to say that we can only use integers. Let's bring fractions into algebra. So let's, when we're doing substitution, we'll make one of the uh, variables have a fraction value. When we're um, uh, collecting like terms, let's make one of the coefficients a fraction. When we're solving equations, let's make one of the solutions a fraction or one of the operations 
uh, something over something else. So we're keeping the fraction of skills involved uh, by by sticking them into uh, the next half terms topic, and I think that's what people like to call interleaving. But if again, if a teacher's listening to this and thinks, "Yeah, I really like the, this mastery approach when mastery's done properly like this," and yet their school doesn't follow a so-called mastery curriculum, is there anything an individual teacher can do within their lessons to kind of embody these key principles without having the kind of whole school buy into it? That's difficult because for the for the teachers who have the least amount of say, if they find themselves in a department where they're just you've got to keep going with the curriculum, you've got to keep going, you've got to, you're under this pressure to make sure you hit all the content, then that's a difficult scenario. That that's you can't. It's hard to then say, well, actually, I'm going to need to spend four lessons on this because my pupils don't get it, or I want to get some manipulatives out, which invariably take more time. Um, you're going to end up compromising and trying to cram three concepts into one lesson. Uh, however, I guess, what do you do in that scenario? You stand your ground, you look for evidence that it works, you speak to other teachers on, on Twitter, you read other people's blogs, you put something under your head of department's nose, see what you think of this, you talk about it openly in a line management meeting. So I've been thinking that my class are really struggling with uh, adding fractions, what do you think about me spending three lessons on it and really hammering it home so that they don't need to do it in year eight? Uh, what do you think about this? Can we put it on this? I'd really like to try this out. I'm just thinking, like, it sounds like it would be a uh, more of a political route that you need to take to try and get it right with with the people who make decisions in the department. No, I think you're no, I think I think it's I think it's a, a fair point. Um is there anywhere that you direct anywhere in particular that you direct teachers to who want to learn more about kind of mastery done done proper? Are there any good websites or resources or good good blogs that people should be reading that have perhaps influenced you or that you think articulate the way that, that you kind of believe it should work? Well, you didn't ask me the question of what I think mastery really is. Well, you did, but we skated over it. So oh, yes, we did. <laughs> let's let's go back to that. What I think, for me, what mastery really means is that um, the pupils won't won't simply just be able to repeat an algorithm or do it, repeat the procedure, but they'll they'll come, they'll bring to it a certain level of understanding, hopefully. Um, and this, for me, is a departure from where I was in 2010 and where a lot of us were, which is we've got to get move on with the content okay so we're going to have to compromise on them understanding it they just need to jolly well do it and if i show them how to do it then i want them to be able to do that ad infinitum that skates over any kind of understanding so for me mastery is about keeping the mastery uh, the, the understanding and the fluency together um and and not kind of going for one or the other but both together if that makes sense so it, yeah, I guess it's that's nice. the holy grail, the dream of being able to do it and understand it to the level that we do. Like that, it's just, you've just got this body of you know, knowledge and understanding, it, so you know why you're doing what you're doing. No, that's a, that's a that's a lovely definition. And um, as as I say, is there is there some are there some places that you direct people to go to learn more? Well, with that in mind, then the places to go are the places that are going to help you help your pupils understand things better. Um, and pupils, uh, blogs and places that I've read uh, where people are thinking about the conceptual understanding 
um, are blogs where people are thinking about the concrete manipulatives or, or diagram pictorial representations. Bar models is an obvious one uh, I think that people have mentioned a lot. There's a lot of good stuff that comes from the NCTM recently and particularly if you can find that part of the NCTM website or the Maths Hubs website, there's, there's probably more stuff in one place that you'll find than, than anywhere else. That said, Bodil Isaacson has a great blog. Uh, I've been fascinated to read your development of your curriculum. I think you had about seven posts on that. Um, who else? Uh, Chris Bolton has a lot to say, um, good stuff to say, and he, he kind of transformed my practice, I think, when he joined KSA. He, in particular, um, thinks a lot about short-term memory, uh, spacing effects and things like that. Um, so I think we've got an increased understanding of, of how memory works. It's not perfect. We've got a better understanding of motivation in the classroom. We've got a better understanding of um, maths misconceptions. It's a very exciting time, actually, to be, I think, in, in maths education. We're in a better position and better informed than we've ever been. Uh, there's good ideas, I think, that have, been, that have come over from Shanghai for those people who have been open and ready to receive uh, ideas. Um, there's stuff going on around the country. There's stuff going on around um, everywhere. Uh, yeah, uh, that, that's worth reading. But in particular, I think let's go back to Bodil, NTTM, Chris Bolton, your blog. Um, I think those are those are probably some good go-to places. That that's perfect, and that that segues us in actually very nicely into the next big topic that people have wanted me to to ask you about, and also that I, I've wanted to ask you about, and that is this, this topic of Shanghai. Now, am I right in saying that you went over there fairly recently? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I went over with the Maths Hubs um, at the beginning of September 2015. Perfect. And would you be able to just articulate, if possible, what was your, what did you know before you went, and what were your kind of preconceptions that you had, and what did you, how did they change after you'd, you'd seen what you'd seen, and what what kind of lessons did you learn from from your time there? Yep. Okay. Uh, so I think my preconceptions were that there'd probably be a lot of learning through repetition. That classrooms would be quiet and austere, that there might be a lack of creativity or personality, um, those sort of things. The, the feeling, the ambience might feel quite harsh. Um, and then what I discovered, what I learned, you know, that some elements of truth in that. I, w- I wouldn't go as far as saying austere, uh, but certainly you could describe it as very focused. Um, and hard working but the things that were different were that that level of focus is there for 35 minutes the, the full 35 minutes of the lesson from the first second to the last second it's focus 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 but then there's always a 10 minute gap before the next lesson and during those 10 minutes the pupils just you know are completely normal wild excited running around type pupils you know there's there's all the typical stuff that goes on in the playground, in the corridor, in the lesson, the noise, the, the, the joy. Um, so the, the, I got the ambience wrong. Like it's a balance of focus for 35 minutes and then wild abandon for 10. Uh, I got wrong the rote learning. Um, like rather than there being banks of questions that pupils go through, 
each exercise is probably three or four minutes long and that's punctuated by quick fire questions from the teacher misconception style questions from the teacher uh, true or false style questions you know, various things like that um, I think the biggest thing that's changed the way I plan and deliver my lessons now is is the way I view the um, the way the Shanghai teachers came out with questions and this was uh, articulated by one of the NCETM guys who was out there and his reflection which which makes so much sense to me is that Shanghai teachers don't come up with questions in order to generate more practice for the pupils they come up with questions that will spark a conversation so from one question to the next there's something that's discussion worthy about it there's there's a curveball in there that they they've thrown in a zero or something suddenly become a fraction or everything was a fraction now some suddenly there's an integer or they've thrown in a negative or a variable or maybe a combination of all of those um, but all those things then just serve to kind of jolt the the mind a little bit and think, oh, okay, that, that's a little bit different. Let's see what happens here. Um, so that's now how I try and that's now how I think about my questions when I'm planning. What's going to what's going to be a bit of a curveball? What's going to knock things slightly out of routine? And it's, it's going to take our understanding a little bit further. If I throw in a fraction at this point with the pupils, what can we discuss? What will they think? What, where can I get them to? If I change it to a variable, if I throw in an expression, can they still handle it? If I put in a third or a, uh, an index number, can they still handle it? So I think, yeah, that's kind of what I learned from Shanghai is to choose questions that will spark a conversation, not just choose banks of questions that will allow them to repeat ad nauseum. And I think one of the one of the misunderstandings with 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 Shanghai, and again, it's it's like mastery that it's it's easy to label it as a certain thing, and it often often gets very much misunderstood. Is that it, it works over there because because of the culture and because of the, the ethos and all this, but that you're saying that you've you've brought the techniques of these curveball questions um, back to your teaching in the UK. Have you found that it's a method that that can work anywhere or is does does the kind of culture and the fact that students have been brought up on this particular diet for for most of their their education does does that play a significant role as well yeah so that the, the, some of the shanghai bashing um people know that i get quite sensitive about not because it's shanghai or anything else but it's just because i think that when you start to when you when your first reaction is is to bash what what seems to be going well somewhere else why would you do that you know, if we're in another industry then we'd be out there looking for best practice wherever it is in the world at least i hope we would uh, and we wouldn't be so scathing to um uh, and so willing to push back against it but i'm really pleased and glad and happy that all the everybody that i went with all the um people from the math hubs um some of them may have been a, a bit sort of closed, a bit unsure to start with, but when they got out there, we all saw the same things across the city, and we were all eager and hungry and excited to be bringing stuff back. And over the course of the last few months, with the return of the Shanghai teachers, and as they've been, uh, each of my British colleagues have been implementing stuff in their classroom. The stuff that we discuss on WhatsApp between a group of us or on the NCTM forum or when we meet up, all saying the same things. 
that our classes are loving it. They're liking this the, the twist that we're putting in. They're liking the new style of questions that we're adopting. Um, so, so far, I think the, the teachers who have been slowly, slowly, uh, you know, uh, changing some stuff on the edges or maybe changing some stuff right at the core of what they're doing, has been having a great impact for them and for their classes. And has it been, well, actually, let, let me ask you a question just before that. Um, is, is there any other kind of core principles um, apart from the, the kind of curveball questions that um, you, you picked up there, or is that the essence of it? Okay, so other core principles of Shanghai teaching are that um, the whole class does the same stuff, that we go through the same questions together at the same time. Um, so differentiation in terms of lots of different activities or different questions for different children, different groups of children, that doesn't happen. Um, other principles that um, the activities are short and pacey, that in a single lesson it will just be a very narrow slice of, of the concept. So for example, uh, an index law lesson. Typically, one of my English, uh, you know, in, in England, uh, an index law lesson would have included multiplication index laws, division index laws, maybe index laws with, with brackets, all in the same lesson. But with, with their lessons, it was we're just going to focus on the multiplication index law and look at different varieties of questions, different twists, different curveballs on that. So they take a very narrow slice each lesson, don't try and cover too much. I think there's some of the principles and that seems to me like that fits in quite nicely with the concept of mastery then the the kind of going into a topic in in greater depth over a longer period of time yeah absolutely i I guess for me yeah going out there it was a good fit i I, um there are a bunch of things that um that i haven't had to adjust you know there are things that i have had to but yeah it, it seemed to chime quite well with with uh what people are doing over here when it comes to slowing things down and going for more depth. And is it has it been has it been a two way relationship? Has there been anything that you, you you get the feeling that the Shanghai teachers have learned from good practice over here? And has it led you to kind of think that there's a kind of a fusion of the two ways of teaching that's the kind of utopia? Ah, um, they were very clear that yeah they were had all chosen to come and be part of the return program and bear in mind it was a competitive thing and they had to apply and um, beat up other people who also wanted to come uh, so their reasons for coming and wanting to be part of it was they wanted to learn well as much as they could but it, predominantly they wanted to learn around how we did group work because they see us and they look to Britain as, uh, as being more effective than they are at, at finding ways for pupils to work together um, out there uh, what we saw were that pupils were working on individual desks and that was great for that level of purpose and focus that I mentioned and from time to time pupils would be asked to turn around and talk to the person behind them or in front of them uh, but there was generally less collaboration and less group work uh, going on so they wanted to come over and, and see that see how we did it so yeah if, if there was a meeting uh, of, of philosophies from their side, it would be seeing our group work, and from our side, it would be seeing their questioning, their focus, and the way they sliced up the curriculum so narrowly. 
Perfect. That's perfect. Um, well, just a couple more kind of main things, um, if that's okay, Bruno. Um, again, this this relates to something that you you've mentioned just previously with the Shanghai, and that's that's the the kind of concept of of the maths hubs. And again, that it's it's another thing that I find gets a fair bit of bad press. Um, but could you could you just outline what are some of the best practices that you've seen occurring with the maths hubs that you've been involved in? Um. So I think the maths hubs have been. I think the maths hubs have been doing a phenomenal job. Bear in mind that everybody's got their day-to-day stuff to get on with. A lot of these people who are running the hubs are heads of maths who are busy heads of maths. They've got families of their own and they're going way above and beyond. Like we take how busy we are and then think we're going to try and run something for our region, which involves 20, 30, 40 schools. To come along to events and to put on CPD things. There are incredible examples of great practice um, that I'm so glad that I've been part of or been along to, like the White Rose Math Conference in Leeds last year. I'm going along to the Glow Conference this year. Um, um, Boolean, the Boolean Math Hub did one recently. I think they're all putting a lot back into the math community. Um, so does that answer the question in terms of yeah absolutely it's just I, I don't know it's just I hear quite a few negative things about maths hubs, and I think I think there was a bit. I, th- I don't think it helped the kind of way it was the application process, and sometimes they get bad press. But all the experience I've had have been incredibly positive. I'm, I I've been involved with the White Rose one myself, even though the the wrong side of the Pennines for me. But again, incredibly positive. And and like you say, I think people need to realise if they don't that it's. Essentially, incredibly busy people giving up even more of their limited time to try and replicate or replace what the LEAs used to do in terms of providing CPD and opportunities for for teachers to get together in in positive ways. So, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm a big fan of them. Yeah, I think we have a tendency to over-politicise education. I can think of some individuals who would do that, and they probably know exactly uh, who, I, who I'm referring to. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's really unhelpful, right? So someone comes up with the idea of maths hubs. I think the idea is great in principle. The government puts a, a lot of money towards it, but sometimes no matter what the government or the Department of Education does, whether it's, it's Tories and Lib Dems in power, whether it's Tories in power, whether it's Labour in power, everybody wants to have a shot. Um, and I think people forget that it's not necessarily the ministers who are making the calls. Sometimes it is, but rarely it isn't. They've got a team of civil servants who are coming up with strategies and ideas, more often than not, hopefully based on data and evidence. And if they don't have the data evidence or the expertise themselves, then they go out and find existing practitioners, local authority experts or whoever to advise them. So I think there is a devolved decision-making process that people don't appreciate and they just want to take a shot at the person at the top and say, oh, so-and-so minister has, has gone and done this. Sometimes they're to blame, okay, to be fair, but remember that there's a whole team behind them. They don't, uh, they don't just come up with these ideas themselves. Um, so, yeah, I think we have a tendency to over-politicise things and uh, be cynical about people's motivation. I know some people think that maybe the, relate, the reason why we've been involved with Shanghai is because 
China's an emerging market and if we buddy up with China then maybe that's that's good for us economically I mean please like what well, I don't have time to be that cynical like Shanghai at the top of the PISA rankings for me that's a good enough reason to go and find out what they're doing yeah no yeah I couldn't agree more couldn't agree more and um, one more controversy uh to, to talk to you about briefly and that's and, and I know well I believe this is something that, that you feel quite strongly about um and yet um, a lot of teachers feel strongly in the exact opposite direction and that's that's mixed ability or mixed attainment classes now am I right in saying um, that you've mentioned that your your students are taught is it from year seven to nine in their year groups so I'm assuming that that's complete mixed ability and what's what's your view on it what what works about it what doesn't work about it and why why did KSA choose to to, to do so in year seven to nine yes I am an advocate of mixed attainment classes um, I think two bit the two biggest reasons that convince me every time number one is the culture that you can get in a mixed attainment classroom I think is better than the culture that you would get in a setted environment particularly if you think about the bottom sets that's not to say that there aren't great teachers out there who are doing phenomenal things and getting great results with low attaining classrooms and they have great atmosphere in there but I am saying it's pretty difficult uh, and it's hard to avoid pupils labelling themselves there and then in the moment or for the rest of their maths lives or for the rest of their whole life thinking well I was I was always bad at maths at school and that surely got to be propagated by uh, being in a set other than set one and then the trouble is even if you're in set one you've got kids who feel that they're not at the top of set one they peg themselves against pupils who are uh, who are doing better than them um, and think well even though I'm at the bottom of set one I must be stupid at maths uh, that's never a helpful feeling so for me mixed attainment groupings kind of smooth over a lot of those feelings and you can get you can get some really great discussions going on it's not about who's the top it's about us all making progress together. It's about how much can you help the person next to you? How much can you be, are you ready to be helped by the person next to you? So number one reason for mixed attainment classrooms in Key Stage 3 is culture. Uh, and the second reason is that by having setted classes, you need to um, timetable your math teachers to teach those sets at the same time. Right? You can't split your, your sevens into four sets uh, and then only have one teacher. They need to be taught by four separate teachers simultaneously. Whereas if you teach mixed attainment groups, then you could have mixed attainment group A being taught first lesson, followed by mixed attainment group B, followed by mixed attainment group C. And with that setup, you could have one teacher or fewer you know that you could have fewer number of teachers teaching that year group and again I think that is a massive trump card partly in terms of culture again comes back to that having that consistency having one teacher that has oversight over a, a, a single year group um, but also it comes down to their planning and therefore their effectiveness in delivery so in their planning the evening before or whenever they're organized enough to do their planning they're thinking about a body of mixed attainment children 
and they're thinking about, right, I'm going to deliver this lesson three times, not I've got a year seven class and a year eight class and a year nine class and a year 12 class and having to split all that planning time. So I think their planning is more effective. And then when it comes to delivering, if you are a teacher who's delivering the same lesson three times, the second time, the third time, you're going to be delivering it much better. You, you know from the first lesson where the misconceptions were that were arising. You know that you made a mistake with one of the answers or one of the questions on the worksheet, so you quickly tweak it or you can preempt it. You know, all these things then help the second and the third lesson to go more smoothly. And as they go more and more smoothly, the lessons that the people start to feel more confident, they start to make more progress, they start to turn up to lessons happier. Your teacher radar starts to pick up more things in terms of low-level distracting behaviour because you're having to think less about the maths and the questions that you need to ask and the time that you need to allocate to each activity. You've already done it in the first lesson, you've made your mistakes, so you're getting it better for the second lesson, you're getting it even better for the third lesson. I think the reason I stood any chance of becoming an effective practitioner is because I was teaching mixed attainment classes and I was repeating the same lesson three times a day. I, I, I'm almost sure of it that if I was teaching four different, five different classes of different year groups, that I, I would not have developed very quickly as a teacher. I would not have developed my behaviour management, I would have not developed my curriculum insight, I would have not developed my understanding of good math pedagogy. Well, if, if that's the case, and just to kind of play devil's advocate a little bit here, why do you then do you then set in key stage four? And if so, why not keep the mixed ability going right through till the end? Good question. We don't quite fully set them. So at the end of year nine, we add up their English, their maths and their science score to give a total score and then rank those in order. And the top portion goes off to become one form group. The middle portion goes off to become another form group and a bottom smaller group goes off to be a third form group. And then that form group in year 10 is the same, for, they see their form group through to year 11, and they have their English, their maths, their French, their RE, and their science lessons all together. So it comes again back to culture and relationships, fewer teachers uh, seeing them, and um, the, year, the head of year needing to have conversations with fewer teachers to find out how the kids in their in their form groups are doing, um, or I should say, that, and the form teachers being able to have fewer conversations with fewer teachers about how the kids in their form group are doing. Like if your form group is being taught by one math teacher or one English teacher, that's easier to go and find out how they're doing in maths than if your form group is split up amongst four math teachers. You're not going to have time to go and speak to all four math teachers. Um, and so therefore you don't really get a, a very good picture of how your form is doing, therefore culture diminishes, relationships aren't as strong, the role of the form teacher isn't, um, the, the, the form teacher isn't as empowered, the year, head of year isn't as empowered. So it comes back to culture, and again I said culture was the trump card in all of this. Well it, it sounds to me from, from listening to this that you kind of need both hand in hand. You need the whole school culture that you've kind of spoke about in terms of the ethos of the students, the routines in the classroom, um, the homework, all that side of things, the rewards, the merits, the demerits. 
and you also need the mixed ability to kind of complement that and if one of those was missing the other one wouldn't work as effective and I think that's when I see mixed ability go wrong I think it's because the culture in the school isn't doesn't lend itself well to mixed ability um, and likewise I don't know if you'd agree with this but I would imagine your culture wouldn't be as strong in your school if you, your kids were setted because it wouldn't kind of it, that wouldn't complement what you're trying to do as a, as a whole school policy w w would that be a fair comment yeah it would yeah it would like at KSA it was it was this happy marriage of all these different factors it wasn't always a happy marriage so you know, we had to work on a marriage <laughs> and, and, and work work out which factors were working and which ones weren't and tweak but we tried to make it as happy a marriage as possible but we were aware yeah that it was all these different things I think we used to take a, a leaf out of Chris Brailford's book, the, the cycling guy, with all his one percent solutions. You know, every, every we tried to tweak something that would make a one percent difference, and overall, the combined effect would make a significant difference. And it, like this, all comes down to having a fantastic head teacher in Max. Like he has this incredible vision and ability to pull all these different factors together, and he's able to sweat the detail, but also be able to keep his eye on the long-term vision and. The, and the goals of the school. Um, he sets very high standards for himself, for the teachers, for the parents, for the pupils, every part of the school. Uh, and he sees that through day after day. And I think where I go into schools and, and see certain things missing, I look at what's happening at the top and think, like, do they have the same clarity of vision? Do they have the same energy for sweating the stuff, for getting systems in place for homework and behavior? Do they place the same value on culture? And where they they don't, it's it's evident that the school the school isn't as high performing as it could be, uh, and that makes me sad. Obviously, it's, it's never nice to go in and see a school that's not performing to what to, to how well it could be in relation to how well it could be performing. But then I think it's hard to kind of lay the the blame entirely at the head teacher's door in the sense that they're only likely to be as good as the best head teacher that they ever worked under or worked for like people go through the system and it's hard to be uh it's hard to be good if you don't have great examples that, of, of managers and leaders that you're working for so head, head teachers that don't have that vision that's because they haven't worked with a head teacher who was any better than them so yeah i i worry about the pipeline of of uh great head teachers um, because I don't think there are, you know, it's a generational thing. It's a, it's a kind of history repeating itself, if that all makes sense. Uh, it's, yeah, no, it, it certainly does. It certainly does. A great math teacher, if you're not witnessing great math teaching, it's hard to be a, a, a more effective teacher than the most effective teacher you've ever worked with. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, um, if I can just end, just one final question for me, Bruno, then I'm going to hand over to you for, for your big three. And that's, um, is there anything that you would include on a PGCE or a teacher training course that you think is perhaps missing? Um, and if we can think kind of math-specific math uh, PGC or teacher training or, or general, whether it's behaviour or whatever, is there anything that you you think should have should be included in teacher training that's that's possibly lacking yeah well i think the stuff around routines and behavior management and how to to have you put on a teacher face stand like a teacher but have it you know uh have some authority that doesn't mean to say being scary but at least knowing 
what your expectations, what, what are reasonable teacher expectations to have and how to pull them off. I think that that that's got to be there. I, I question whether PGC tutors that are are the right people to deliver that, but that's a whole separate conversation. Um, so that's on the uh, yeah on one side. Pedagogically, I think there are well I think there are two things, three things that make amazing math teachers. And one is the culture, and I've mentioned that. The other two things are great great questioning and great modelling. Uh, and if you could pull off all three, become a great great questioner, a great modeler, and a great someone who leads great culture then you're going to be an extremely effective math teacher. So I would say that PGC courses need to to focus on how to design and write a great bank of questions and and how to model effectively. So whether that's using concrete resources or diagrams or how to set out examples in a methodical fashion, what kind of examples to use, how to... and, and then the marriage of questioning the whole class while going through an example on the board. What are good questions to to bring in at each stage of the example, at each stage of the instruction? That's perfect. That's perfect. Well, that's that's the end of my my questions. So all that's left now, Bruno, um, is your big three. Are there any three, whether it be websites, blogs, or blog posts, or resources, or whatever, that you'd like to direct our readers to? And I'll include links to these in the, in the podcast notes. I think it's hard to think of just three. Um, if I was allowed loads, I'd go with the ones that people already know about, who are you know, the, the home favourites, like Resourceaholic, Your Blog, the Emaths blog, which is Mark McCourt, um, and Mel Muldowney's Just Maths blog. They're fantastic. Anything that comes out of Peps McRae's mouth on Twitter or on his blog are obviously brilliant. Anything that comes out from Solve My Maths or Don Stewart and SR Cav uh, are also fantastic. But um, if I'm going to try and be original, then I would point people to a book by John Mason and Anne Watson, which is called Thinkers, and it's available through the ATM. And it's a brilliant set of question stems that uh, I think... Uh, talk nicely to all the Shanghai stuff that I was talking about, the curveballs, getting pupils to think, um, getting people going into that extra level of uh, deeper understanding. I think that it's a great place to start when you're planning your lesson. So I'd uh, urge every math teacher to buy a copy of Thinkers. And then along with the, the stuff I was talking about regarding manipulatives and modelling, my, my other two top three then would be a website called Glencoe Manipulatives and Glencoe is G-L-E-N-C-O-E Manipulatives um, so that's great for the whiteboard so if you can't, if you don't have a class set of place value blocks or even if you do and you want to model something at the board you can find some place value blocks uh, and a whole bunch of other good maths manipulatives and along that vein um, thinkingblocks.com is a good place to go to find um, a virtual set of bar models or bar models that you can manipulate and extend and annotate and things 
they, they sound a superb selection of three. Well, Bruno, this has been an, an epic conversation, but I, I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So I just want to thank you so much for your time and, and thank you for, for the work you do that's always thought-provoking and, and inspiring to a lot of teachers. So thanks so much for taking the time to join us tonight on this podcast, Bruno. Not at all. I mean, if I could just say that I'm absolutely tickled pink, as my dad would say, to be, uh, to be doing this podcast with you. When I think I started out in teaching, you were one of the first guys to be out there blogging and like to be being blogged by one of my maths heroes uh like it's hilarious i wish i could tell my dad this um yeah i think we'd, we'd both be tickled pink oh that's very kind thank you very much Bruno. So there you go. I genuinely hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as I did. I'm so lucky doing this because I just learned so much from my guests and Bruno was was no exception at all. Um, Over the course of that two hours there were so many big insights I felt and it's very hard for me to pick out a single takeaway. But if I had to pick one it was something that Bruno talked about very early on in the interview. And that was when he made the point that he moves his students forward at the exact same pace at the start of the lesson, possibly at the sacrifice of differentiation, because he believes that behaviour and culture and getting that class ethos is far more important and will pay dividends in the long run. And that may well have triggered some alarm bells and even some violent outbursts from people listening, because we're often taught that differentiation is perhaps the fundamentally most important thing in a maths lesson. But I'm going to be perfectly honest with you here, I'm not entirely sure it is, or more specifically, it shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. Whenever I give talks um, to various schools and in various conferences um, about differentiation and how I plan lessons, I often make the point that I used to make a huge mistake, and that was I used to think differentiation meant making sure that every student had something different to, to be getting on with, and I used to spend my time creating loads and loads of different worksheets um, for different students working at different levels throughout the lesson and my lessons were absolutely awful because I used to spend my time just handing out worksheet after worksheet after worksheet. I was just a glorified paper distributor and the kids didn't have a flipping clue what was going on and I had no idea what their depth of understanding was. And now when I think about uh, differentiation, I think much more about the questions I plan. Um, And whenever students are getting on with the main task, I'll I'll make sure everybody's working on the same thing, but I'll try and ensure different students are working on it at different depths, just with some little thought-provoking and probing questions. And if you uh, go onto my website and find my rich task section, or go onto TES and and find my, my rich task resources, you'll see that they are just single activities, but with possibly 20 or 30 different questions or lines of inquiry that you can give to your students that will challenge them at different levels. But what Bruno said got me thinking even more about this. And often, I mean, that's that's all well and good for differentiation during the main part of the lesson. But at the start of the lesson, it's incredibly difficult to get differentiation in there. Because whilst it's important that students are always making progress and that students are not bored and if they're bored, they go off task and so on, 
At the same time, you need really kind of strong modeling uh, by the teacher. You, re you need kind of clear routines. You need students listening um, to make sure they understand the instructions of the task and also the content that, that's being delivered. And if, for example, you say to a student, um, can you add two fractions together? I mean, some will tell you that they can, some will tell you that they can't. And um, But unless you've got evidence for that, it, you don't know for definite. And to kind of take this to its extreme, even if, let's, let's take adding fractions, say you put a, a couple of fractions to add on the board and said to the students, all right, can you just add those two fractions together? Okay, they may be successful in, in adding that particular question together and getting that right, but who's to say they've got that real depth of knowledge? And I think what I, well, certainly what I took from what Bruno was saying here was, let's move the class through the examples at the exact same pace for maybe the first five or 10 minutes of the lesson. Let's ensure that depth of knowledge is absolutely solid, is really, really there. And then in the main part of the um, lesson, okay, fine let's let them go off and, and kind of do their own thing and maybe use some of my ideas on probing questions but at the start of the lesson it's all about ensuring that that depth of knowledge is is, is sound and Bruno makes the point that it's you can only achieve that if the culture and behavior management is right in the classroom because for example if you've got a student who can do the first kind of three or four questions that are being presented there's a chance that they could go off task but not if the culture's right not if the culture is is such that you respect each other you help each other out and so on and the other point that Bruno made about this is that his tasks and his questions are very short and sharp so maybe five seconds, 10 seconds. So even if a student can do it, there's not enough time for them to go off task. And crucially, let's flip that on its head. If a student can't do it, again, they don't have to feel that level of discomfort for, for a sustained period of time. So I'm, I'm a fan of that. And it's quite reassuring to hear that, that, that Bruno is too, that, that modeling and moving the class through at the same pace at the start of the lesson is absolutely fine and that the differentiation can come in later on. And if you try and differentiate too much, especially at the start of the lesson, it can lead to an absolute disaster that you'll be kind of trying to sort out for the rest of the lesson. So that was that was my takeaway from, from Bruno's uh, discussion there. One of many, I should say. But anyway, now it's time for everybody's favorite feature, largely because it doesn't involve me in any way, and that's the podcast puzzle. And Bruno's got something a little bit different uh, lined up for us this week, and it's something that you can all get involved in at home um, and via Twitter. So for this, let me hand back to Mr. Bruno Reddy. Okay, so my podcast puzzle, perhaps not a puzzle, but something that I want people to try doing. I'd like you to draw a horizontal line somewhere on a page. Let's just find a blank page. It could be an A5 page, A4 page. Just draw me a horizontal line um, spanning most of the width of the page. And then somewhere along that line, I'd like you to place a dash across, the, you know, say perpendicular to the line. It's only a little dash. And I want you to place that line so that you split the line into two parts. And I want you to think about where you're going to place that line so that you split it into a proportion that you find most pleasing. Okay, so I'm not, I can't, I'm not going to um, lead you into, into where you ought to split that line. It's completely up to you. You place a little dash somewhere along a, a long horizontal line um, in, in to create a, purport, a proportion that you find most pleasing. Okay, that's one part. Then somewhere else on the page, draw a rectangle. 
well, no, draw a rectangle, bearing in mind that a rectangle can also be a square, right? So a quadrilateral that has four right angles, and draw that of the dimensions, or of the ratio between the, the vertical and the horizontal size that you find most pleasing. I'm trying to not lead anybody to, to draw anything that I want them to draw. I, I want to see what you guys come up with. And once you've done that, it would be great if you tweeted it. And Craig, what, what hashtag should they use to, to tweet this? Let's go for Bruno's Puzzle. Hashtag Bruno's Puzzle. Right, hashtag Bruno's Puzzle. So it's draw a line and put a little dash somewhere along that line into the most pleasing proportion. And then draw a quadrilateral with that has four right angles um, such that the ratio of the horizontal to the vertical side is the most pleasing proportion for your eyes and we'll see what comes back okay this is relating to my undergraduate dissertation um, so I'll be interested to see whether this um, this very loose scientific study uh, matches up with what I found with my slightly more rigorous scientific dissertation Well, that one has certainly hooked me in. Have a go at that challenge from Bruno, take a picture of your effort, and remember to tweet him, at MrReadyMaths, and use the hashtag BrunosPuzzle. All that's left for me to do is to once again thank my guest, Mr. Bruno Reddy, for being on the show. And thanks also to PodcastThemes.com for the lovely jazzy music that you've heard throughout this episode, despite the fact that both my father and my work colleagues are not huge fans. For comments and questions, or just to say hello, you can find me on Twitter, where I am at MrBartonMaths, or on email via teachers at MrBartonMaths.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or your favourite podcast platform, and if you could help spread the word or just give us a decent rating, that would be hugely appreciated. And I will return next episode with another dose of mathematical goodness. So take care, and bye for now.